I'd like to begin this morning by uh, thanking the elders for the invitation to come and speak to you this morning. I almost need, feel like I need to say that after being gone for two weeks. It seems like it has been uh, a lot longer than that since I have stood in the pulpit this morning and delivered God's word to you. I just want you to know that that is not a normal thing for me. Uh, in fact, it's very abnormal to be uh, gone two weeks in a row, but uh, for some reason my September schedule worked out the way that it did and was just a very uh, busy month last month. But uh, as far as I know, we should be here at home uh, for a good while now. And I appreciate Brother Tim and uh, his willingness to speak a couple of weeks ago. I know that he spoke to me, uh, it's probably been four or five months ago now, and just said uh, to me, if you're ever going to be gone and you need someone to fill in, uh, I would be happy to do that. I know he has just been very eager for opportunities to preach, uh, and uh, it wasn't long after he told me that that I said, I'm going to be gone a Sunday in September, and so that worked out for him, and appreciate his willingness to uh, stand before you and deliver God's Word, and, and also Gavin last week, I'm sure that he did a good job. I haven't I watched that sermon yet, but I, I read that outline a number of weeks or months ago and know that, that he did a good job in presenting God's Word to you. Uh, but I'm happy to be back with you this morning and looking forward to our time together in the Word of God. In the post-God, post-Scripture, post-Christian age in which we are currently living, the reality of sin, I believe, has become a myth for many people that are living in the world. What once was commonly accepted as sin has now often been redefined in what we might say softer terms. And they are terms that are trying to not sound as bad or as evil as we once said them. And sometimes even in the culture in which we live, the idea of sin has kind of been turned totally upside down. It has been turned upon its head and not only are we defining it in different ways and using different terms to talk about sin in our time, but our culture, it seems to me, is heading in the direction that we are just wholeheartedly embracing and even encouraging sin as being that which is good. In the words of the prophet Isaiah, we are living in days where so many around us are calling evil good and good evil. And yet God tells us in his word that sin is very much real. Sin is very much alive, just as it has always been since sin came into the world back in Genesis chapter 3. It is very much alive and well even today. And we might say as we look into our culture and how far we have gone from God, that sin is especially well and alive on this earth today. While those of us who believe in God and His Word still believe in the reality of sin, I think sometimes we can fail to think about sin as we should. We can struggle to really understand what sin is. After all, who, who wants to spend the time that we have here on earth thinking about something that's as unpleasant as sin? Who wants to dwell on something that isn't really even tangible or visible. It's something that we cannot observe with our five senses. You can't taste sin or touch sin or smell or see or hear sin. Sure, we can see the effects of sin. We can observe the consequences of sin. But sin is something that we can't physically observe with our senses. 
And yet, because we believe in God and because we believe in what He says in His Word, we know that sin does exist. As we think about the question this morning, what is sin? I want us to give two biblical answers to that question. We're going to give uh, one answer to that question this morning, and then we're going to give an answer to that question uh, next Sunday morning, uh, if the Lord wills. This question, what is sin? First of all, as we look into our Bibles, especially into our New Testaments, we find that the Apostle John writes about this matter in his letter about love, in his letter about God's love for us and our love for him and our love for one another and how we can know beyond a shadow of a doubt, how we can have confidence in our salvation and know that we are on the road to eternal life. In all of that discussion about such positive matters, John talks to us about sin. If you have your Bible, your New Testament, to open there to the passage on the screen in 1 John chapter 3 at verse 4. 1 John chapter 3 at verse 4, John writes to us here that everyone who practices sin also practices lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. Here in this text, the apostle, I believe, is giving us a very clear, a very concise, Maybe not so much a definition, but I believe at least a description of what sin is. He says to us that sin is lawlessness. That's not a word that we use much in our everyday language. But he's saying to us that sin is that which is without law. Sin is that which is outside of law. While most English translations that I looked at for this particular passage do translate this word as lawlessness. There are a couple of other uh, uh, translations or phrases that might be helpful to us. The King James here says that sin is transgression of the law. Uh, the New Living Translation says that sin is contrary to the law of God. It is, again, the idea of that which is without law. That is that which is outside of God's law. The Greek word that John uses here is the word Anomia, I believe that's the way that it is pronounced. And there are some definitions of that word. Strong says that it is talking about that which is illegal, a violation of law, that which is wicked. Thayer's gives this definition is the condition of one without law, as we've already said. It is one who shows a contempt for law and violates law. It is the iniquity that we are sinning against our Creator. And as you think about those definitions, there are probably others that we could look at and other translations that we could consider this morning. Just to summarize what John is saying to us here in 1 John 3 and verse 4, I've summarized it this way, that sin is really a motive, a thought, a word, an action, an attitude that we have that is outside of God's law. It is that which is illegal. It's that which is against the law that God has given us. It is that which is opposed to God's law, God's standard. And I think that is important for us to realize because not just something that is particular to 21st century America, but this has been the way it has been throughout the world since sin came into the world that we have had the propensity as people to oppose God. We have had the propensity as people to just think that we can live life our own way or to even think that there is no law to which we are amenable. There is no law to which we are subject, that we ourselves are our highest law. And as long as we are doing what we believe to be right, then we are right. But as we go back in our Bibles, we find that ever since God created mankind and put him here upon the earth, 
that God has given us as his creation law. He has given us uh, commands to follow. Go all the way back to the book of Genesis in Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1. And notice what God says, the first words as far as I know that God spoke to Adam and Eve, to the creation that he had made in his own image and according to his likeness. Verse 28 of, first of Genesis chapter 1 says that God blessed them and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Over into chapter 2. God speaks some more words, this time specifically to Adam, and I assume he was wanting Adam to speak these words to his wife Eve. At verse 16 of chapter 2, the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you shall surely die. Here God was speaking some words. He was giving some laws, if you will, to his creation, to mankind. Notice that the first of these laws that we just read there from Genesis 1 and verse 28, it was a positive law. It was a positive command that man was to, as the highest of God's creation, that man was to fill the earth and subdue it, that man was to multiply upon the earth, that man was to be over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the sky, over the cattle, over every other part of creation that God had made. It was a very positive thing that God wanted them to take some action in the world in which he had put mankind. While the second command or law that God gave here in chapter 2 was from a negative standpoint, that man was not to eat of a particular tree that God had placed here in the middle of the garden. And in the day that he eats of that, he would die, that there would be consequences to that action. Secondly, I want you to notice that Adam and Eve lived under God's law. Even though they are here in this perfect paradise that God has created for them, where they had everything at their disposal. I I wish sometimes that we could go back and we could experience Eden here on earth. You know, in my mind anyway, it's kind of like some of the days that we've been having recently. It's about 72 degrees in the daytime, 50 something at night. There's a nice breeze blowing. The sun is shining. They just have everything that they need. It's a perfect paradise. But even in that perfect paradise, God gave mankind law. And since that time, I would suggest to you that God has continued to give those of us who have been made in his image his law. He has given all people what I would describe as his universal law. In Genesis chapter 2 and verse 24, God making a statement here about marriage, that for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and be joined to his wife and they shall become one flesh. I think we can see, as we've talked about in some previous lessons here recently, about marriage and about the family that even Jesus, thousands of years after uh, Adam and Eve lived, that he comes back to God's original from the beginning language concerning marriage. And he really is saying, I think this applies to everyone who is married, that all of us who are married are subject to this particular law of God concerning marriage. In Genesis chapter 9 and verse 6, after God has destroyed the world with flood, And now the waters have receded and Noah and his family are able to get out of the ark and live on earth again as they once were used to doing. That God says something important here to Noah and to all of us in Genesis 9 and verse 6. That whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God he made man. 
I believe that is a law that applies to all of us. That if we take the life of someone else, intentionally we murder someone else, that our life ought to be required in its place. There are some laws that apply to all of us because God is the creator and we are the created. We, of course, remember that God gave some specific laws to his chosen people, Israel. We read about some of those in the book of Exodus in chapter 20, all throughout the book of Exodus and Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy especially, and some laws that were just specific to his children Israel that all of those who were living on earth did not have to be subject to. And all of us, all people again, as Christ has come and he is God, the Father has given all rule and all authority to him in heaven and on earth, that we all live under his law, if you will, that Christ is ruling over all of us. Think about the words of the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 9 as he's talking in this context about the ministry, the stewardship that God had given him as an apostle, as a preacher of the gospel. He says here at verse 20 of 1 Corinthians 9 that to the Jews I became as a Jew so that I might win Jews. To those who are under the law, and I take that to be under the law of Moses really, as under the law, though not being myself under the law, so that I might win those who are under the law. To those who are without law, as without law, though not being without the law of God, but under the law of Christ, so that I may win those who are without law. That Christ came and he spoke words to everyone, to Jew and Gentile. And it applies to all of us. So I'm just trying to make the point to you here at this spot in our lesson that we have always lived under God's law. That the Bible is very clear, I think, that humanity has always lived under the law that God has given us and we will always live under God's law as long as this earth exists. And so for those people, and sometimes it might even be us as we are influenced by the world around us in our thinking and in our living, but those who would deny that sin is real, are really denying that there is a law that is given by a sovereign God. And that sovereign God is over heaven and earth. And they are denying that we are subject to that law, that we are subject to God. There are people in our world today and in our culture that would say that sin doesn't exist. (laughs) Because in their mind, God doesn't exist. And if God doesn't exist, there is no law that governs all of us as humanity And therefore, if there is no law, then there is no sin. There is no violation of law. There there can't be anything outside of law without law unless you first of all have that to begin with. And so John would say to us that law, or sin rather, is that which is lawlessness. Coming back to 1 John, I want us to look at something else that John wrote about sin and trying to help us answer this question of what is sin. In 1 John chapter 5 and in verse 17, John writes here that all unrighteousness, he says, is sin. And there is a sin not leading to death. We're not going to get into that discussion this morning, which is the context here about a sin leading to death and a sin not leading to death. But what I want you to focus on is what he says here in the first part of this verse. Here, just like he said back in chapter 3 and verse 4, that sin is lawlessness. Here, John is just very clear. He is very concise in describing sin for us. He says that sin is unrighteousness. The Greek word that John uses here is defined as a deed that violates law and justice. It is an act of unrighteousness. 
And it is unrighteousness as God defines that. I think we need to say that. Hopefully, maybe that's kind of implied in the lesson this morning. But as God defines what is right and wrong, we have to take his word for it. And so it is doing something that violates God's law. It is doing something that violates the justice of God. Notice again that sin is that which is a violation of God's law. It is what God defines as being unrighteous, not what I would say might be righteous or unrighteous, not what you would say or anyone else, but it is what God says is unrighteous. It is that which is not right in God's sight. So as we think about these two words that John used here in 1 John, as we think about the word lawless, as we think about the word unrighteous, I think we can think about sin on at least two different levels. Number one, sin can either be going beyond God's law and therefore we are living outside of God's law in violation or opposition to his law or it can be coming short of God's law. It can either be doing what God has not said or being the person that God has not told us to be or it can be not doing or not being what God has said to us in his word. Just to give you a few examples of this, of I think many that we could cite from Scripture this morning, and these are some, I think, some well-known examples. Uh, From the book of Leviticus, first of all, in chapter 10. In Leviticus chapter 10, uh, as uh, God has given Moses some instructions about uh, the priesthood, about Aaron and his sons, and who they are to be, and what they are to wear, and, and their duties as priests, We have this story of Nadab and Abihu here. I'm sure very familiar to most of us. Leviticus chapter 10, notice what is said to us in verse 1. That now Nadab and Abihu, the sons of Aaron, took their respective fire pans and after putting fire in them, placed incense on it and offered strange fire before the Lord, which he had not commanded them. And fire came out from the presence of the Lord and consumed them and they died before the Lord. We might think that this, this whole incident is kind of strange. But here are Aaron's two sons. They are priests themselves, Nadab and Abihu. And Moses says to us that they were offering strange fire to God. I don't know exactly what that was, all that was involved in that. But I think he makes it very clear as he says here at the end of verse 1, they offered strange fire before the Lord, which God had not commanded them. And so God had not told them to offer this fire to him whatever this strange fire was. Therefore, they chose to do what God had not said. God had not given them the authorization, if you will, to offer this fire to him in this offering or this sacrifice. They were transgressing God's law. They were living outside of God's law. They were doing that which God had not said. We talked about this a little bit in uh, Cody's class this morning. If you were in the back classroom Uh, with David and and talked a little bit about King Saul that preceded him and some things that we can learn from uh, both of of their lives and their examples. But go to 1 Samuel chapter 15. 1 Samuel 15. Uh, You might remember here what God uh, tells Saul and all the Israelites to do and what they do uh, instead. 1 Samuel 15, beginning at verse 2. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I will punish Amalek for what he did to Israel, how he sent himself, set himself rather, against him on the way while he was coming up from Egypt. Here's the command, here is the instruction, here is the law, if you will, that God was giving to Saul and to the Israelites on this occasion. Verse 3, 
Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him, but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. We remember what happens here beginning at verse 8. It says that he, Saul, and all of the people captured Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and utterly destroyed all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good. And they were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. We know, even as was mentioned in our class this morning, they had good intentions about that. They weren't planning to take all this stuff home with them. They were planning, at least they said, they were going to offer this and sacrifice to God, to Jehovah. But Samuel comes to Saul and he says, why didn't you obey the voice of the Lord? We go through that whole conversation. I want you to pick up there at verse 22. Samuel said to Saul, has the Lord as much delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to heed than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as a sin of divination and insubordination is as iniquity and idolatry because you have rejected the word of the Lord. He has also rejected you from being king. Saul then, it seems like, at least has somewhat of a repentant attitude here at verse 24. Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. Listen to the language that he uses here. I have indeed transgressed the command of the Lord and your words because I feared the people and listened to their voice. Saul knew exactly what he had done. He knew that he had sinned against God and he knew that sinning against God was transgressing God's word. It was a violation of God's law. So God through Samuel had given Saul and the Israelites some very specific instructions, some specific commands, if you will, to follow here. And yet they chose to do to not do what God had said, and as a result, they sinned. They practiced lawlessness. They practiced what God considered to be unrighteousness. They did not submit themselves fully and completely to His will. We see Jesus, I think, talking about this when we come to the Gospel of Matthew as He gives us at least some criteria for where we will spend eternity, whether we're going to be on his right or on his left, whether we are going to be with him for eternity or whether we're going to be separated from him. In this scene here at verse 24, let's back up to the parable of the talents here. We remember the talents that the man had given to his servants, the five and the two and the one. And the men that had been given five and two talents took those and doubled them. They used them because that was the command of their master. We know what the one talent man said, beginning at verse 24. He said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave, you knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scatter no seed. Then you ought to have put my money in the bank, and on my arrival I would have received my money back with interest. Therefore take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has ten talents. For to everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, even what he has, does have, shall be taken away." Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. And then we get to what Jesus says to those on his left, beginning at verse 41 of this same chapter. 
He said to them, depart from me. Accursed ones into the eternal fire which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. Naked and you did not clothe me. Sick and in prison and you did not visit me. And we know that these on his left say, well, Lord, when do we see you naked? Or when do we see you hungry or thirsty or in prison? And Jesus said to them, to the extent that you did not do it, To the least of these, my brothers, you did not do it to me. Verse 46, these will go away into eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. I want you to just step back from from the parable of the talents and this scene that he is showing us here for just a minute. And to look at both of these situations from an earthly perspective. And we would probably say, well, the guy that had the one talent given to him by his master and decided he wasn't going to use it, that there's nothing really wrong with that. I mean, he's not doing anything that's bad. He just took that talent and buried it in the ground and, and didn't do anything with it. And the people who decided that they weren't going to help someone who was poor or sick or hungry or thirsty or in prison, that they didn't really do anything bad to those people. No, they just failed to take advantage of an opportunity to serve them. But I believe in both of those cases, Jesus is saying that when we fail to use our God-given gifts and talents and opportunities to serve Him, to serve others, that we are sinning. We are going outside of God's law. God wants us to be productive people. He said to that one-talent man, you wicked and lazy slave, and cast him into the outer darkness. And for those who decided that they weren't going to serve their fellow man when they had the opportunity and ability to do that, he said, you're going to go away into eternal punishment. James, I think, kind of makes the same point at the end of James chapter 4, and we're not going to turn and read that passage this morning. I think hopefully we're all familiar with that. But in the context of us being filled with arrogant pride and making future plans for our lives and leaving God out of our plans and not allowing our plans to be subject to be changed by his plans. James comes to this conclusion in verse 17, that to the one who knows to do what is right and doesn't do it to him, it is sin. I think that particular statement should be taken in the context there of James chapter 4, but also think that it is just a general truth that can be applied to so many situations in our life that when we fail to do what we know to be right and we have the opportunity and the means to do that, James says to us that it is sin. And so sometimes we think about sin as just somebody who is out here murdering someone or committing adultery on their spouse or doing all of these horrible things that are against God's law. And yes, that is sin, but we fail sometimes to think about sin as when we don't do and we're not the kind of people that God has called us to be. And Jesus and James, I think, would point out to us very clearly that that is sin. Although sin, as we said at the beginning of our lesson this morning, is not something that we can physically observe with our human senses, if we are believers in God and His Word, we must come to the conclusion that sin is real. And as we've already said this morning, we can certainly see the consequences of sin that the results of sin are ugly. They are messy. It is nasty. It is a disease and it is so bad 
that as we've already sung about this morning in our first song, that God's grace, thank God and praise God that His grace is greater than our sin. If we will humble ourselves before Him and live as His true servants. What is sin, at least as we're looking at it this morning? Sin is lawlessness and it is unrighteousness as God would define those terms for us in His Word. Sin's not something pleasant to think about. We would rather not think about it. I'd rather not preach about it. But it's something that we all need to consider from time to time as we look at our own lives and as we look at our own relationship or lack thereof with our Creator. What about you this morning as you examine your heart, as you look at your own life? Can you see in your own life that you have sinned against God? It may be that you're living a life of sin, that you're living a life that is outside of God's law, outside of the boundaries that he has given to us. And if that's you this morning and you're not a child of God, won't you become his child? Won't you take advantage of the grace that God so graciously and abundantly and freely offers us through his son, Jesus Christ? This problem of sin is so great that it took the blood, the precious blood of Jesus Christ to be shed on the cross for us to be redeemed from our sins. Would you take advantage of that blood this morning? If you need to become a child of God, we'd be happy to baptize you into the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. And you can have all of your sins washed away. And you can now live within God's law. You can live a life that is a righteous life. You can live a life that is pleasing to Him. For if as a child of God you have walked away or gone outside of God's boundaries, why not admit that and come back to Him? Whatever your need, whatever your condition might be this morning, if we can help you in some way, we would encourage you to respond to come to the front now as we stand and as we sing.